Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. My name is Chase Ifflin. I'm the Minister of Community and Connection here at Redemption, and uh, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts today. We started this series back in September. We're now over halfway through the book of Acts, and we plan to uh, wrap up sometime around the end of July. And we are at a really pivotal pivotal moment in the story this morning. So before uh, we jump in, I just want to recap the story of Acts to this point, and just in case you've jumped in somewhere in the middle of the series, or um, even if you've been with us since the beginning, September was a long time ago. Um, The book of Acts is in the New Testament of the Bible, and it follows the four Gospels to start out the New Testament. And the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, tells the story of God creating the universe, including our planet and human beings like ourselves. Um, The Old Testament tells the story of human beings rejecting God's rule in their lives and messing up God's creation. And then God beginning a plan of rescuing and restoring his creation through a people called the Israelites. And all throughout the Old Testament, you get a glimpse of what a restored creation might look like. But at the same time, you read again and again that human beings continue to reject God, continue to make a mess of things. But in the midst of that, God remains faithful and promises that one day he will send a perfect savior who will come and make all things right. And then we come to the second part of the Bible, uh, which is the New Testament. And the first four books of the New Testament are called Gospels. And they tell the story of God himself taking on human flesh, being born as a Jewish man named Jesus in order to restore his creation once and for all and to be the savior that was long promised in the Old Testament. And while the Jews thought that the restoration that Jesus came to bring was going to be immediate and it would be political upheaval for Israel, God's plan was actually that Jesus would die as a substitute for the punishment that human beings deserve for our sin, that Jesus would rise from the dead to defeat sin, Satan, and death, and then that Jesus would establish a new people similar to Israel in the Old Testament called the church that would take this message of restoration and forgiveness out around the world. And that brings us to the book of Acts, which is where we begin to see this new people called the church take the good news of Jesus out into the world. And so far in Acts, we've seen really powerful moments like Pentecost, where Jews from all over the world gathered in Jerusalem and heard the gospel being preached in their own language and thousands trusted in Jesus in a single day. We've seen uh, miraculous healing after miraculous healing that leads to conversion after conversion. We've seen some hard things as well, like Christians being imprisoned for their faith and both Stephen and James being killed for their faith. And then in recent weeks, the story has ramped up even more because the message that Jesus is Savior and Lord has now spread beyond the Jews. So we've seen Samaritans and an Ethiopian trust Jesus. And then a couple weeks ago, we saw God give Peter a vision where he made it clear that God's purposes in Jesus to restore the world are not just for Israel, but
but they're actually for the entire world. And this was an, an incredibly shocking message for Peter to hear. Peter grew up steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He knew that Israel was God's chosen people. And so he was a bit confused why God was now inviting Gentiles in. And Peter was hesitant to listen to God and to go invite Gentiles to trust in Jesus. But ultimately he responds by preaching to Gentiles and we see the conversion of Cornelius and then uh, more and more Gentiles as they spread Jesus, as they trust in Jesus. And now the church has spread at this point all around the first century Mediterranean world, and you have churches of, that are made up of both Jews and Gentiles all over this area, all believing that Jesus is Lord. And so today we're picking up the story about 10 years after Peter's vision and um, his preaching the gospel to Cornelius. So it's been 10 years since Gentiles were actively invited into the church. And what we're going to see is that even though there's been a lot of growth and excitement that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, there's also a lot of tension between Jews and Gentiles and what it looks like for these two groups to be part of the same church and the same people of God. And the event today we're looking at is the first church council in history, and it's called the Jerusalem Council. Uh, church councils were pivotal in church history as leaders gathered to settle big issues about who Jesus was and the nature of the Trinity and how salvation worked. Some of the more famous church councils that you might have heard of are the, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, the Council of Chalcedon, and some of these uh, early church councils led to creeds, like the Nicene Creed, which is this wonderful statement of faith that Christians have united around uh, for 10,000 years about what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus. <clears throat> but the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is the first of these. It's the first church council, and it's the only one that's recorded for us in inspired scripture. And so this is the only uh, church council that is uh, authoritative on the same level as the word of God. And in other words, this is the only time in the New Testament where all of the early major church leaders gather together in one place to debate one issue and come to a conclusion that will be informative not just for the churches in this day, but for Christians everywhere at all times throughout the history of the world, including you and I. And the issue at hand, which we'll see in just a minute, is not just a secondary issue that doesn't matter much. The issue up for debate in this council is as basic and as core to the Christian faith as it gets. The issue is essentially, what is the gospel? How does someone get in on the restoration of the world that Jesus has begun? How does someone receive the salvation that's available in Jesus? It doesn't get any more important than that, and the conclusion that the church leaders come to is going to shape what it means to be a Christian for the rest of history. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a lingering cough, so I'm going to try not to cough into the microphone too loud. <clears throat> it's not an overstatement to say that the future of the Christian faith is at stake here when these Christian leaders gather in Jerusalem. It's hard for us to imagine any other different outcome than the one they came to, but maybe they could have come to a different outcome. This chapter in Acts right here is this pivotal moment in church history where the question of how is someone saved? How does someone receive forgiveness of sins? How does someone experience new life in God is decided, it's affirmed, and it's what we believe today, 2,000 years later. And so this story in Acts 15 is simply one of the most significant passages in all of the Bible. And at this point, you might be wondering why Jeff is letting me preach it uh, instead of him. I was asking myself the same thing, and I think he was having second thoughts this week, but uh, here we are. 
this is an incredibly important story in the book of Acts, but even though the issue that leads to the Jerusalem Council, Jew and Gentile relations, doesn't likely have any uh, effect on you and I today, the result of this council does have profound implications for us. The Jerusalem Council and their decision they come to helps us answer questions like, if Jesus offers salvation from the brokenness of the world, how do I get it? What do I have to do? Do I have to be a good person? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to follow the Old Testament law? It helps us answer questions like, who can be saved by Jesus? Is salvation just for people who grew up in church, or can people outside of the church living a life filled with sin be saved? It helps inform questions like, who should be welcomed into our church? Who we can be in small group with? Do we, are we able to be in church or small group with someone who votes differently than we do, or believes differently about uh, the age of the earth, or about how and when Jesus will return, or about another controversial doctrine? Um, Christian doctrine. It also helps clarify our mission as followers of Jesus. Are there many different ways to be saved from the brokenness of the world and Jesus is just one of those ways? Or is Jesus the only way? And how does that answer affect how we interact with our family members, our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers? So Acts 15 isn't just about Jews, Gentiles, and circumcision. It's about what is essential to the Christian faith and what is not. And the implications of that today for us are virtually endless. So let's jump in and we'll look at this story and see what the council decided. Um, We're going to be in Acts 15 and I'll start just in verses 1 through 5 to kind of set the scene for us. So Acts 15 verse 1, uh, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch and it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But... Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And we'll stop there for now. So like I said, it's been about 10 years in the story since Peter's vision and Cornelius's conversion that Gentiles have been welcomed into the church for 10 years now. And we read that there's a group in Judea who believes that Gentiles can't be saved unless they are circumcised and follow the Old Testament law. And then there's a group of Jewish Christian Pharisees in Jerusalem who also believe the same thing. And it's likely these tensions had existed in the church from day one, but it seems that they're hitting a boiling point right now and they need to be dealt with. And so Barnabas and Paul uh, leave Antioch as representatives for the churches there and travel to Jerusalem to sort things out with James and Peter and the other church leaders. And this is a a bit of an aside from the main point in the story, but I think the way that the church sorts through this issue is really instructive for us. Uh, When this group came to Barnabas and Paul in Antioch, Barnabas and Paul could have just shut them down, kicked them out of the church, said, look what's going on with these Gentiles. You guys are wrong. We're right. You have no place here. But that's not what they did. Even though Barnabas and and Paul were confident in what they believed, they still went to Jerusalem. They showed prudence. They talked it over in community. They they wanted to get the opinion of others before they jumped to a conclusion. Uh, and, And that's not really what we often see with disagreements in the church today, is it? Now, Paul and Barnabas didn't have Twitter. 
That wasn't an option for them. But I'm pretty sure even if it was, they wouldn't have just blasted their initial reaction on Twitter. But what they do here is they seek wisdom in community instead of jumping to conclusions. And it's healthy for the church. And so I think there's, there's an example for us to follow here of Barnabas and Saul that when we see something that we don't disagree with in the, the church, either the local church or the capital C church, that our first reaction is not blast our conclusion online, but that we uh, gather in community with other Christians, that we process those things and uh, process disagreements in a healthy way. We know there are still disagreements in the church after this council, but there's also a lot of unity that we see here, and it's because they, they process their disagreements in a healthy way. So that's an aside. Back to the main point. Uh, these groups want Gentiles in order to be circumcised, or to be circumcised in order to be saved. But why? The heart of the issue here is that circumcision and the law was so crucial to God's people belonging to God in the Old Testament. As I already mentioned briefly, God, God began his plan for redemption, the redemption of the world by calling a people to himself in the Old Testament. It started with Abraham in Genesis 17, and when God called Abraham, he gave him the sign of circumcision, that Abraham belonged to God and circumcision was a sign of that. And then after the Israelites multiply, they become a people. God rescues them out of Egypt. He gives them uh, his law in order that they might be separate from the rest of the world. And then again, God reiterates that a sign of this covenant between God and his people, the sign that these people belong to God, is circumcision. And so circumcision, circumcision here becomes a shorthand way to just refer to the entire law. You can see that in the difference in what the two groups say. Uh, in verse 1, it says that they want Gentiles to be circumcised, but in verse 5, it says they want them to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Circumcision was just a, the beginning of a life of following God's law laid out in the Old Testament. Circumcision is obviously just for males, and so the issue here isn't circumcision. The issue is, do Gentiles need to follow the Old Testament law in order to be saved? And for these Jews who grew up studying the Old Testament, it makes sense that they would have these concerns. Sometimes we give them a hard time, but they aren't questioning whether or not Gentiles can be part of the people of God. The Old Testament welcomed Gentiles into the people of God as well. But in the Old Testament, in order to be part of the people of God, Gentiles had to become Jewish. They had to adopt the Old Testament law, and if they were male, they had to be circumcised. And so these groups are okay with Gentiles trusting Jesus and joining the church. They just want Gentiles to follow the Jewish law just in the same way that converts to Judaism did in the days of the Old Testament. And so the heart of the issue is not, can God save Gentiles? It's how does God save Gentiles? Does God save Gentiles by faith in Jesus alone? Or does God save Gentiles by Jesus plus inclusion into Israel? So let's read on. And we'll see how the church responds, what the council decides. We'll pick it back up in verse 6. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, 
and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And we'll stop there again. So Luke tells us that there, there was much debate. This wasn't just a simple conversation where a consensus was reached quickly. There were people present on both sides, some saying Gentiles need to follow the law in order to be saved, and some saying, no, trusting Jesus was enough. And then Peter gets up and he begins to make his case. And he starts out by giving his personal testimony about what happened with Cornelius and with his vision. And he doesn't go into the details. He just says, you know what happened. And no doubt they would have known what happened. They knew he was talking about Peter's incredible vision and Cornelius's conversion. And notice there how Peter described what happened as God's choice. Peter wants to make it clear that it wasn't his choice to welcome Gentiles into the church. Uh, In fact, if you remember, Peter was hesitant to welcome Gentiles into the church, and yet the Spirit overpowered Peter's unbelief and used Peter to spread the gospel to the Gentiles anyway. And so Peter's saying, this wasn't me. This isn't even necessarily what I wanted, but it's what God did. And Peter goes on to make his case, and he says that when he preached to the Gentiles, the result was that they believed in Jesus just like his fellow Jews, and that when they did, they received the Holy Spirit in the same way his fellow Jews did. So Peter's building his case that Gentiles have been welcomed in in equal measure as the Jews, even though Gentiles have not been circumcised and are not keeping all of the Old Testament law. And then Peter makes this really striking statement in verse 9. He says that God made no distinction between us and them. This is really remarkable because even though Gentiles were always welcome in Israel, there was always a clear distinction between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, the whole point of the Old Testament law was to make this distinction and to set Jews and Gentiles apart so that the world would know that there's something different about the Jews as God's people. And so Peter, this faithful Jew, is standing in Jerusalem, surrounded by his fellow Jews and saying, I went out and preached the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles, and the result was the exact same for both, and God made no distinction between us and them. Peter goes on to say that God has cleansed their hearts by faith which again is another remarkable contrast to the law and to what these two groups want because they want Gentiles to be circumcised and to bear the outward marks of keeping the law and adhering to the rules and regulations in order to make them clean. And Peter gets up and says, God has already made them clean internally by faith. They don't need circumcision to be clean. They are already clean. And then Peter gets to the core of the issue and he says, if God's made them clean, why are you adding to what God has done and asking them to follow the law? It says, why are you putting God to the test? And this phrase, putting God to the test, was a common Old Testament idiom that essentially means hindering God's purposes. So Peter's warning these groups that if they want to force Gentiles to observe the law in order to be saved, they will be standing in the way of what God has been doing in the world the past 10 years, saving Jews and Gentiles alike. 
And then for good measure, Peter reminds them that even they, the Jews, have not been able to bear the yoke of the law. So why are they asking others to do the same? And then Peter ends with this beautiful statement of the gospel uh, directed at the Jews here. He says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So I love how Peter was, was bold and tough with his opponents here. But then when he, when he ends this, he comes back around to, to the gospel and reminds them that even they, as Jewish Christians who are keeping the law, their salvation isn't dependent on circumcision and the law, but they, both Jews and Gentiles, are now saved through the grace of Jesus. And the result of Peter's speech is the crowd fell silent. Barnabas and Saul then stood up and began telling their own stories of conversion from Gentiles. Following these stories, James, who's one of the key leaders of the church in Jerusalem, stands up and he affirms what's been said previously. He cites Amos 9 as an Old Testament example that, that shows that this was always God's plan to include Gentiles in this new thing that God is doing in the world and that Gentiles are equal members in the redemption of the world with Jews. And so the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council is really simple, but it's also really profound and important. And it's that salvation is from God by grace through faith alone, period. Salvation is from God by grace through faith, period. Nothing but receiving the grace of God by faith is required to experience the full and forever life that God's salvation brings to our broken world. And that conclusion would have been shocking and it would have been profoundly good news to this first century audience as they heard it. But if you grew up in church like I did, then nothing this council decided is shocking to you. Uh, It doesn't even sound like news to you. It's just something you've grown up knowing. It's an assumed fact about Christianity. But let's try our best for just a minute to put ourselves in, in their shoes, in this first century world. Whether you're Jew, Gentile, everyone in the first century, just like us today, knows that while there's beauty and goodness in the world, the world is also a broken place filled with suffering. And every culture from the most primitive humans up until today has had this deep longing to remedy the brokenness in our world. Everyone wants to get rid of illness and poverty and broken relationships and abuse and murder natural disasters, and the ultimate sign of brokenness, which is that all human beings experience, which is death. Every human being who has ever lived has this longing for a better world and for a better existence that never ends. And so many of the early cultures invented gods to explain the world, and they performed sacrifices, or they did certain things to appease the gods in order to try and fix the brokenness in their lives and make the world go well for them. But it never worked as well as they hoped. Many early cultures developed paths to uh, living forever or, or believed in an elixir or potion that was hidden that would help human beings escape death. But the paths never worked and the potions were never found. And then you have the Jews who were an early culture that was very different from the rest of the world because they believed in one God. And they had the signs and wonders that their God was doing to prove that, hey, this God was actually real in contrast to the other gods. And there God promised blessing and he promised that he would return one day and restore all that is broken. It was a really hopeful worldview, much more hopeful than most of the other cultures. But at the same time, it came with the law and what seemed like endless rules and restrictions and burden that someone had to bear in order to follow God. To most Jews, the law felt like this incredible burden and standard that they could never live up to. 
And that was kind of the point because the law was designed to teach them that they couldn't measure up to God, that they needed a savior, but like we often do, they missed the point. And so the law didn't feel like it led to life like it was designed to do. And so as history moves forward, you have all these groups, all these peoples all around the world establishing themselves in the world. And everyone agrees on two things. The world is broken and we need a solution. And so common solutions range from following God's lengthy and burdensome law to making sacrifices to many gods and trying to keep them from getting angry to, well, we just need to accept the brokenness of the world and deal with it to, we just need to ignore suffering, eat, drink, and be merry because life is short and there's nothing we can do about it. But then Jesus shows up and Jesus promised to forgive sins He promised to provide an intimate and personal relationship with the loving God who is the creator of the universe. He promised to fully restore everything that is broken in the world and to make a way for human beings to live forever in this restored world. And he sounded totally crazy, except that at the same time, he also performed miracles that couldn't be explained, that gave credibility to his message. And then the greatest miracle of all time took place that we celebrated a couple weeks ago because Jesus died like every other human being who had ever lived, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sent his Holy Spirit to his church and the restoration plan that Jesus inaugurated for our broken world was on. And if you were someone living in the first century who saw Jesus and you saw the miracles he performed, you heard his teaching about the restoration of the world, or maybe you saw the power of the church and the community of love that they displayed to one another, you would likely have asked, what animal sacrifices do I have to make in order to get in on this? What, what deeds do I need to do? What rules and regulations do I need to follow in order to get in on what God is doing in the world through Jesus? And the answer back then and the answer now is nothing. There is nothing required of you to experience the salvation that Jesus has achieved other than believing and receiving his grace. That's why Paul says, he talks about this yoke and he says, why are you placing an unnecessary yoke on these brothers and sisters? The Jewish rabbis referred to the Old Testament law as a yoke because it was something that was, it was difficult to bear, but it was good for people and led to life. And they were right. The law was good, but it was also very burdensome. But then Jesus comes and he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus comes and he wants to replace the yoke of the law. And Jesus' yoke is similar to the yoke of the law in that it leads to life, but it's also polar opposite because Jesus' yoke doesn't require a single thing from us. Jesus' yoke is easy and light because the good news of Jesus is that everything human beings have ever wanted is available and it's free. We simply have to receive it. As I said we're not tempted to keep the Old Testament law like they were in order to escape sin and suffering in the world. But that doesn't mean that the message here of the Jerusalem Council is is that salvation is by grace alone isn't also the best news in the world for us as well. We haven't chosen the law as a path for salvation, but the most common path we've chosen in the 21st century is ourselves. For the most part, we've done away with animal sacrifices. We've done away with antiquated rule keeping, but we haven't done away with brokenness and a desire for salvation from it. Instead, we believe either explicitly or implicitly that we are our saviors. 
So we try to save ourselves from suffering by accumulating more and better things, more and better houses and cars and gadgets and experiences until we finally pass the point of being happy. We jump from job to job, searching for the perfect one that will finally make our work meaningful. We pursue hobby after hobby, looking for the the right one that will fulfill us, or we look for fulfillment in parenting or kids. We feel this need to discover who we are from within, and then we believe that once we do that, we'll finally be complete. We want to be, we, we can be whatever we want to be. We can make our own path to happiness in the world, which sounds great in theory, except that if your plan for escaping brokenness and finding true life rests completely on your shoulders, then you've just exchanged the heavy yoke of rule-keeping for the heavy yoke of crippling anxiety because your whole life and future is now up to you, so good luck. So all we've done in the 21st century is throw off the heavy yoke of rule-keeping and replace it with the heavy yoke of our entire destiny resting on our shoulders. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus, as countercultural as it was in the first century and as countercultural as it is to us today, is that you are not your own savior. There is no perfect combination of family, work, possessions, and hobbies that will lead to the good life. The only way to deep, real life in this broken world is by acknowledging the reign and rule of the world's true King, Jesus. And nothing is required of you except to believe that Jesus is Lord and to receive his grace. Another way that we try to save ourselves is by making ourselves acceptable to God before we come to him. And the bad news of the gospel is that you'll never be perfectly acceptable to God on your own. But the good news is you don't have to clean yourself up before you come to him. You can just come and be accepted because of Jesus. So we don't have to improve our circumstances. We don't have to improve ourselves. The conclusion of the Jerusalem Council was that Jews and Gentiles are both saved by the grace of Jesus. Many of the Gentiles in the first century world lived wild and immoral lives that would be considered wild and immoral by today's standards, and yet the gospel was powerful enough to save even the worst of sinners. What heavy yoke are you carrying this morning that can be replaced with the light yoke of Jesus in your life. Maybe you aren't trying to save yourself from within. Maybe you aren't trying to pursue heaven on earth and save yourself that way. Uh, Maybe you don't feel like your sins are too big to keep you from God. But another way that we've made ourselves our own saviors is by satisfying our longing for life after death with the assumption that just being a good person will get us there. Irreligious people do this by giving money to charity and being kind to others. Religious people do this by attending church and tithing and avoiding big sins. But the problem is that while the gospel of grace is the most inclusive message the world has ever heard because salvation is available to every single person without any requirement whatsoever other than to receive it, the gospel of grace is also the most exclusive message the world has ever heard because it says that salvation is only available through the grace of Jesus. And so if you're relying on your Christian upbringing or on church attendance or simply being a good person to experience salvation, then you won't. And it doesn't mean that your life is going to be terrible. It probably isn't terrible. But it does mean that you won't experience the deepest, most meaningful life that is available to human beings. And it means you won't experience perfect and forever life with Jesus when he returns. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus. 
Not by church attendance, not by being a good person, not by anything else. All right, let's get back into Acts, finish out this section. Just read a few more verses. Um, I'll pick it back up in chapter 19. We'll see the letter that they send out to the churches. Um, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So the church leaders want to pass along their decision to the Gentiles in Antioch. And uh, so they draft this letter and they send it with Barnabas and Paul. And it's a little bit confusing at first glance because they, they decided that salvation is by grace alone, that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, they don't need to follow the law. And yet they write to them and they tell them to abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things that have been strangled, and from sexual immorality. So did they just decide circumcision wasn't necessary, but these things were necessary? Uh, Surely that's not what's going on here. So what what is going on here? Well, there's two options about exactly why the church leaders asked Gentiles to keep away from these things. Both options are are closely related. Uh, What's clear is that the four things listed, listed here are both things that are prohibited by Old Testament law, and also things that were common in pagan temple worship. And so these are things that these Gentiles had likely participated in before becoming followers of Jesus and might have continued to participate in some of these things. And so the first option is that the church leaders know that these are activities that are associated with pagan temple worship. And so they're writing the Gentiles to disciple them and to say, you don't need to adopt our law in order to be saved, but you do need to extricate yourself from the temple worship of the pagan gods and to stop participating in those activities. So in other words, they're not saying that you need to do this in order to be saved, but because you're saved and now you're a Christian, these things are no longer appropriate. Another option is that because these churches were made up of Jews and Gentiles, and both groups came in with different cultural backgrounds, the Gentiles came into the church practicing these things, and Jews would be appalled by these things. 
And so even though the Jerusalem council said that Jews, Gentiles, everyone's saved by grace, Gentiles don't need to keep the law in order to be saved, it's going to be really hard for these two groups to coexist in churches if Gentiles are going to the market and buying animals that have been strangled and sacrificed to gods and then bringing them to lunch after church with, the, with these Jews there. The Jews would be appalled by that, and so it's just not going to work. And so this option says that Gentiles aren't, that the church leaders aren't asking the Gentiles to abstain from these things because they need to in order to be saved, but it's because they're saying this is good for the fellowship of the church. You don't need to keep the whole law to be saved, but you need to be mindful of what these Jews believe so that you guys can exist in a church together. And like I said, I think it's possible both option, options are actually going on here, but the second option seems more likely because in verse 28, the church leaders call these requests a burden. And so if they were writing to disciple the Gentiles and say, hey, this, these things aren't good for you, they probably wouldn't call it a burden. It seems more likely they're saying, hey, we know you guys are okay with some of these things, but the Jews are not. And so it would be really helpful for the sake of fellowship if you would abstain from these practices. And the, the, as the Gentiles receive the letter in verse 31, even though they've been asked to lay aside some of these things, it says that they rejoiced. They received the letter as great encouragement. So what can we learn from the conclusion to this story and the letter that was sent out? At this point in Acts, we have churches all over the Mediterranean world, and they're full of Jews and Gentiles alike, side by side, laying down their cultural preferences and now holding firm to the core of the gospel, which is that salvation is available and that it's available by grace alone. And so they took this gospel of grace that they believed and that saved them, and now they're extending it out to others in community. They're willing to lay aside some of their preferences for the sake of the unity of the church and the sake of the primary issue, which is salvation and salvation by grace. Whatever differences exist in our world today, politically, racially, ideologically, the division between Jews and Gentiles was probably sharper and more hostile than ours. And yet, because of the, the, they were holding firm to the core of the gospel, that salvation is by grace through faith, period, they're able to lay aside cultural preferences and exist side by side in the church. And the challenge for us today is to do the same. The challenge for us is to strip away what might be cultural preferences or secondary issues from the gospel and to lie those things aside in order to welcome any and all into our community who would trust the same grace that we've trusted for salvation. Too often the gospel of grace becomes the gospel of grace plus a few of these other things instead of just the grace of Jesus, period. We do this, we add to the grace of Jesus when we believe that we need to clean ourselves up in order to be saved or that when we believe our good works will save us or when we try to forge our own path to heaven on earth. And then we do it to others when we ask others to trust Jesus and vote a certain way or trust Jesus and believe this about the age of the earth or spiritual gifts or the end times or name your, your favorite controversial doctrine or trust Jesus and dress a certain way or trust Jesus and abandon certain hobbies. Of course, salvation by grace alone doesn't mean that we excuse sin or that God doesn't change people who trust in Jesus, but too often churches have erred on the side of who can we keep out instead of who can we welcome in. And the gospel says all are welcome, 
The only requirement is to come and to receive his grace. So a group of people saved by grace ought to lead to a community that's shaped by and filled with grace. And then lastly, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone means that our mission as a church and our mission as individual Christians is to invite others to receive Jesus' grace and to be saved. This isn't just one option of many. This isn't something that's good for us but is unimportant for others. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus is the only way to experience full life and forever life with God in a restored creation. And so we have a, a mandate to go out and invite others to be saved by grace as well. This right here, salvation by grace in the Jerusalem Council is, is the heart and the core message of Christianity. And if you have questions about anything you've heard today or about what, what the gospel is, what it means to receive Jesus's grace, or maybe this morning you've uh, believed and received Jesus's grace for the first time, we, we would just love to talk with you. Um, please don't leave here without talking to us about, about salvation by grace and about what that means. Um, Chris and I will be out in the lounge after service. Audra's around as well. And um, we, we would love to talk with you about about Jesus, about grace, and about the salvation that, that he offers. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you didn't leave us in our brokenness and in our mess, but that you've put a plan of redemption into action, and that even more than that, your plan of redemption requires nothing on our part other than to receive it. Father, I pray for each of us in this room this morning who have received your grace, that you would help us walk in your grace day by day, moment by moment. That we wouldn't forget that we start the Christian faith by grace and we finish it by grace as well. And Father, for those who have never believed or received your grace, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts that only you can do. You would bring people to life this morning. You would save people by the grace of Jesus. And uh, reorder and reorient their lives on a path of knowing you and living forever with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.